Welcome to the podcast with no name, a podcast that's dedicated to pictures of people's cats doing just adorable or funny things. Uh, no, no, please stay. Uh, that's not really what it is. It's This is a podcast dedicated to talking about the various things we enjoy in life, uh, mostly with a geeky bent, uh, entertainment-wise, of course. So this means movies, books, comic books, TV shows, and music. And sometimes that leads to discussions about bigger things in life that are outside of those things, and sometimes it's just us gushing endlessly about a favorite book or movie or band or whatever the, the topic of the week is. And my guest today is Stephen Bell. Stephen and I met through the Movie Timelines YouTube channel as patrons of Josh Spiegel's. And what made me want to have this conversation was the uh, fact that we both put the movie in, in a recent Dead Last, which is a ranking show that Josh does. We both had fairly high rankings of the movie Starman in his John Carpenter ranking. Now, I found that a really hard series to rank because honestly, there's only a couple where I'm like outright, I don't care if I never watch this again. <laughs> uh, even a lot of John Carpenter's weaker films are, are fun and you can get into that a little later, but we both had Starman ranked fairly high. I think it was like my fifth or sixth place, if I'm remembering correctly. And you I've had it as third place. Third place. That's right. And now that is and, and I feel like with Starman is in some ways a really unique one. I was really kind of disappointed that it ranked didn't rank higher with everyone else. But I think that it's it's understandable kind of, with horror fans. Yeah. Not Carpenter's usual thing. And, and that's exactly part of it. It kind of stands out in his his work because it's a lot more hopeful in a lot of ways, even though some of the core messages, mankind would reject this. I mean, it's even kind of a, a you know, the, the whole thing ends with basically a savior motif, you know, like a religious savior. He's basically, um, but to introduce people who might be a little unaware of Starman, it is a John Carpenter film from the early 80s. It stars uh, Karen Allen, who I think most people are ultimately most familiar with her from, you know, the Indiana Jones movies. Uh, and, or at least the first one, and then maybe- Yeah, <laughs> yeah I was gonna say, <laughs> oh, there's only one. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also uh, Jeff Bridges is in this film and the plot is that when we, he's an alien from another planet that comes to earth to study us and assumes the body and form of the dead husband of Karen Allen's character. And it becomes this kind of odd road trip film as people feel, as he does essentially kidnap her, but it's not out of malice, it's out of 
trying to survive and do his work. And the relationship that grows between them as she sees his power, I, I always, I, I, you know, I, I kind of like the, the whole, that whole thing with it. And I remember liking it a lot. Now, your first experience you were telling me with this was, it was really your first Carpenter film even. Yeah, it had to have been because I mean, there's no way my mom would have shown me any of the other ones. <laughs> she wouldn't sit you down for the thing. <laughs> no, and I was probably like three or four or something the first oh, time yeah. I saw it. <laughs> yeah, the and I feel like that's one. It's it, it's weird to me that it doesn't get more attention, though I do understand. Like you said in the rankings, I get why it it fares lower than some films and. In just because it's it's not a scary film at all. It, there's no, it's not even, it's, it's, there's no gore, really. And it's it's very upbeat because the, uh, Jeff Bridges was, uh, apparently he came to Carpenter saying his whole take was that he's a young bird. And that was, that shaped his movements and how he was talking and, and Carpenter even said people were coming up during the filming saying, this is not working, you know? And then when he put together the dailies, it's like, oh, because there is, it's this, he's very uncomfortable in his body, it feels like when you're watching the movie. And, you know, so I, I really like that performance that he gives and, I think it, I, I think it's one of those. I think it, as far as Carpenter's films go, too, it's got some of the strongest performances of his his films. Mm -hmm. My take on Starman is that it's what if ET was a hot guy? <laughs> it's it's kind of a romance yeah. novel if you really think about think about it. Oh, definitely, because it is about it, it's about the importance of their relationship, you know that builds through that story. Yeah, it is definitely, a, there is an element of romance because her fear starts to quickly give away to sympathy and then who he is as an individual really does seem to shape how she's perceiving that experience. So it, her fears start to melt away very early because it becomes very clear he's not, intending harm for her yeah and yeah so the the, the idea there is a definite kind of like you say that what if et was a was a hot attractive guy and, and didn't appear to a kid but instead appeared to an adult it's funny adult. because the similarities between the films are totally accidental if you look in the production history when they were written it's just Right, you know, complete happenstance, but it is kind of funny to to think about how similar they are, well, superficial yeah. at least. They they both exhibit the ability to return life. They both you know to restore things to life. I mean, I love that whole bit where he brings the deer back to life, and because that's kind of the and that's kind of the the moment that because in that scene he and. Uh, Karen Allen are at a diner and she's ready to just duck out and she's going to leave him behind. 
And then all of a sudden when she realizes he's no longer in the restaurant, he's gone off to the car. He's actually confused by the, this dead deer that's tied to somebody's car. And he brings it back to life because that seems the right thing to do. And it gets up and walks away. And of course, that's the moment where she realizes how much, you know, how much compassion he has and how important these things are, this, you know, the respect he has for life that he doesn't think it doesn't make sense to him to kill the deer. You know, and the film doesn't really reconcile the questions that sometimes could raise then, well, but they went in and had burgers, you know, yeah. did he not have a problem with eating burgers? But the, uh, the, oh, then it becomes a horror movie, actually. Yes. If you really think about that part. Yeah. The, the, then you've got the dark, the dark underside, <laughs> but the, that whole scene plays out so nicely and then when of course the guys uh the hunters come out and she realizes the threat because he's not going to fight back he's not that's not his nature to harm people and so he doesn't understand that they're threatening him and he's just trying to communicate you know as best he can and i think that's one of the things that was smart in that he understand he picks up enough language to be able to communicate, but not so much that he can't get confused and thrown off by human behavior, you know? Mm. And, and so that, and, and plus, I think the effects in this film are good. You know, mm -hmm. it, totally. they're, they're solid, everything. I mean, some of them are super basic, like the, the guy, the trucker with the iron, uh, the, uh, the iron pipe or, or wrench that, heats up you know it's real basic you know standard glow stuff for that era but like that whole transformation is is just wild mm -hmm. when, when he goes from baby to adult you know it's like okay this is that's some really great effects work and and i i get that it, it's it's an interesting thing to me again to see how the movie kind of gets forgotten people know it's there and they'll give it positive words but you don't hear it talked about like a lot of other carpenter films yeah and i just have always like there's just something about that emo uh, the emotion of it that isn't present in other carpenter films that's really neat to me as as a you know as i'm watching yeah, because I mean, Carpenter's films tend to be pretty cynical. Yeah, across lots of you know unhappy endings or ambiguous endings. So it's rare to kind of have an ending that's not a huge downer, even though it's kind of bittersweet. You know, it's not right. depressing. Yeah, it's. I mean, there's there there's yeah. I think bittersweet is the perfect because it's it's cynical in the sense that it does look at Carpenter's looking and going. If somebody that he, I, I, it feels like he wants to believe there could be this kind of goodness in the world, but he also knows that people, he, he's very confident that people will, a lot of, most people would reject it mm -hmm. and, and not, and, and fear it even more. And cause that's the, you know, I, I, I think that they have that moment too, where 
towards the end where the one scientist, after speaking with him, he realizes this won't end good for Jeff Bridges's character if he helps, if he does his job. And so it's like, yeah, no, he, he is the hope. Outside, outside of Karen Allen's character, he's the other hope of humanity, of someone able to look and see this event and be like, oh, we, we, we could be better, you know? Because I feel like that is an underlying message in the film that we could really be better, everybody. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we, could, we could be kinder, you know? And... I just, that's not a common way for, uh, for, for Carpenter to, to play out. Uh, I mean, compared to like, you know, um, Escape from New York, you know, right. just a few years earlier, you know, complete opposite end of the spectrum and complete the thing, cynicism. Yeah. You know, where it's, it's just kind of like, well, here we are. Here, these two guys are going to probably die. <laughs> uh, and, and a lot of, you know, the only other times I think where you get sort of happy endings or, fun, well, like Big Trouble in Little China, but that's the nature of the story he was telling. Mm-hmm. And so much of his outright horror just stays in that lane. That mm-hmm. He doesn't really have any, this, this was his, one of his only forays into outright sci-fi unless you count ghosts of mars and i i feel like mars of an invisible man yeah if you want to even count that as part of his filmography (laughs) yeah that's one where it's like i'm happy i i own the blu-ray because i had never seen it before and so i bought it when shout factory put it out oh boy and i have it as a completist i don't think i'll ever watch it again because it just it does not it's the exact opposite. There, there, it, it's that's actually a great to to compare that with Starman, where I feel like every every idea they have more or less works really well. Mm-hmm. You know, it's easy to sympathize with the alien and and his predicament. It's easy to sympathize with Karen Allen's character. I understand why she's gonna why she's initially trying to get away. This is a freaky situation, but I feel like when I look at Memoirs of an Invisible Man, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, it just feels like there's nothing there. Like there's no, he's not trying to say anything, obviously. He's literally just, I mean, star. he didn't- It's a paycheck. Yeah, it's a paycheck. Whereas Starman was technically, it wasn't his idea. It was somebody else's script that was handed to him, but he fell in love with the script. And you really do see that in Starman, that he's trying to make this a great movie. Yeah, it know? 100% feels like a John Carpenter film. It, and Memoirs of an Invisible Man doesn't. No, exactly. Memoirs feels like... Memoirs in the Ward were ones where I was like, these don't... These just This is him going for a paycheck. Whereas you mm-hmm. look at other paycheck what were technically paycheck films in his early part of his career, he still seemed to take a paycheck film that interested him. So you got movies like Christine and Starman, you know, 
where there's a lot going on in him and he, he seems to really want to say something about these characters. And that's a, that, that I, I, John Carpenter films, sometimes his stock characters are fun. Cause you get, you know, you get your, when you get your snake Pliskin mm. um, or you, you know, pretty much everything he did with Russell is watchable. Mm. It ranges from um, entertainingly watchable. Have you to, watched uh, Elvis? I have not. I own a copy. Yeah, I bought it, and I it's not bad. You know, I'm not I'm not super into Elvis, but I was really impressed by how good um Kurt Russell actually does it, acting like Elvis. That would be, I, I I need to finally get around because even on my my film blog that I've neglected for the last couple of years, I um I did like you know the John Carpenter collection but i left out mm. elvis because i was like it's so far afield of everything else he's done yeah <laughs> i'm like ah, because i was doing it during how you know during october so i'm like let's stick with the scary you know the scary stuff and i just i i just remember when i went back with when i was watching some of that early stuff it just all of it is so watchable mm-hmm. so fun or exciting or it, it works your emotions and Starman, it's you just you can't help but notice a different side of carpenter and it's mm-hmm. it's such a neat side i'm a little disappointed we never got something like that again yeah not a not a Starman sequel because i don't think there should be a Starman sequel. no no it would betray betray the ending of the movie yeah i i think the ending of that movie is dead on what it should be i think it should always be a one-off movie you can you can do multiple snake plitzkin movies that that makes sense you can do you could do they could have had it worked out they could have easily done another jack burton movie Mm -hmm. you know um there's a lot of carpenter films have the potential to tell other stories with some of those characters starman they tried with the TV series, you know, where he comes back. They mm-hmm. did it because that was one where, and you know, the eighties are just such a wild time when you go back and look how many movies got made into TV shows. And I think people don't even realize for all the talk about how unoriginal Hollywood is now. <laughs> Hollywood has never changed. No, Hollywood is very willing to just run things into the ground or, take ideas i mean the naked gun was spawned from police squad now that was more many people have even seen police squad you know like i i suspect there are still people that don't know what police Mm -hmm. squad is or but you know the the starman tv show of course they didn't bring back kurt russell they brought in or not kurt russell i'm sorry jeff bridges or uh karen allen it was completely new cast but it was set in the continuity of the film because it was like he comes back 15 years later to to visit his or to meet his son. And I can't remember any of that show. Yeah, I know I, I know I watched it with my mom, but I don't, right. don't remember it at all. I remember watching it, but I must have come out. But well, when was that one came out in 1980? 
I don't think it was hot on the heels of the movie. Uh, yeah, it was like two years later. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, God, I would have just been entering high school. It was a perfect time to catch me because I was, you know, I was a big, I watched lots of sci-fi at that age. Um, well, and I started early because when I was a kid, I discovered like Doctor Who, uh, which was a show that for years I didn't realize had more than one doctor actor as the doctor. <laughs> so for years, I thought it was just Tom Baker. <laughs> yeah. Um, but you know, and then the original run of Star Trek, because uh, I watched a lot of stuff in syndication as a kid uh, going into, and so that was one of those ones where, you know, NBC did that a lot too. I, I, it feels like a lot of times NBC and ABC especially seem to have all these shows. <laughs> I remember that, Manimal, Auto Man, mm. you know, that, but Starman, I can't remember any of the episodes. I just remember the the, the uh, Robert Hayes was in it from the from airplane the airplane films and that's about all I really remember, you know. Yeah. yeah. I think I actually forgot it was I think it was I forgot it was a thing until um we were doing these and I was, you know, reading up, you know, looking at Wikipedia and stuff and I'm like, "Oh, hey, there was a Starman series." Yeah. And I get why, I do get why people would want to continue it, but I feel like, I feel like a, trying to do a weekly episodic story out of it, it just ended, it, it ended in such a nice wide open moment. It's kind of like, sometimes I, 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 I'm sometimes sympathetic to folks who actually feel like there should have never been any Terminator movies after the first one, because mm. the first one's a perfect closed loop. Yeah. The minute you do the second one, well, how did they know they lost you know, <laughs> in the first one? Yeah, the, did, it, it, the time loop stuff by the second one starts getting messy. Yeah. <laughs> and and so I, and, and, and that's one where too, you look and the more you try it, some, some things work really well for being those wide, you know, like having, but I like movie. I sometimes prefer a movie that just ends with a wide open. It could go anywhere. Maybe it's being left to my imagination, mm -hmm. but I don't need everything. I don't need it to end with, uh, okay, get ready for more stories. No, I, I, I'm cool with it just ending wide. Yeah, wide. there's so many movies that I feel that way. Like uh, The New Candyman, that's a good example. Oh. Lots of people, I'm seeing like they want it to be longer and they want it to keep going after the ending. And I don't at all. I think it ends right. exactly where it should. I don't think you should oh, do yeah. a sequel or anything because nothing, nothing you create would be as good as what you can imagine. I, I feel like right now with the candy, the two Candyman movies, the first and the second, or the uh, ignore the two in between. That first yeah. one, twenty twenty one, tell a wonderful, tell a tell a great story, you know. And they, 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 they really play off the play off of each other with cool themes. Mm -hmm. um, that, and and I think that the I, I get the the desire to expand it but i feel like yeah i feel like 2021 Candyman kind of definitively oh, definitively definitively told us the story we needed to hear 
Yeah. You know, it's a complimentary piece. Yes. It, it complements the original really well. They go together really well. And the, the, there are, you know, and as a horror fan, it's kind of, it's easy to get sucked into the whole sequel thing because you do, mm-hmm. you look at, you look at all the horror sequels out there and they're endless. I mean, I, I just in front of me, I have my uh, Friday the 13th, Halloween and Puppet Master sets, you know, on a, on a mantle. <laughs> and all of those are at least 10 movies or more. Um, and so often you, you look at those franchises and you go, well, most of them suck. And yet still there's that soft spot of not wanting to give up on, but this time it might get it right. (laughs) You know, but I was Starman that falls into that category of, I kind of like that John Carpenter largely didn't keep revisiting his stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, Even if, and, and really outside of Halloween, nothing else, uh, Halloween, and of course he made Escape from L.A., but that still feels like his work. Um, the you know you did it, Halloween is the only one that was so far out of his hands that they could just keep making them. Yeah, but I really feel like it. it, it it's a nice thing with Carpenter that when you look at that we didn't get in the mouth of madness too. That's another one that <laughs> like it should be a one-off story. Yeah, you can't you can't follow up with that. What, what would the no. movie be? It would be it's yeah. the end of the world. What what are you gonna do? Yeah, what what what's your next step? Uh, mm. you know, and I just I, so many, you know, really so many of his the like I said, there's really only a couple where I can see you where you could i think you could have they could have easily and they could probably even still do a fun follow-up to big trouble in little china Mm -hmm. that but that that film was developed in that kind of environment of it could be a franchise as -hmm. opposed to starman which going back to it just doesn't feel that way because of those performances and how they close that story out Big Trouble in China was one of his more successful films too, wasn't it? I think that was like, yeah, was, yeah, because it was like right before they live was, uh, like, shortly before they live that way. Yeah, and then, yeah, and, and well, and I think I think what made that one work for a lot of people was the the combination of it being like action comedy, mm-hmm. uh, kung fu, and I still I always describe it as. Uh, the 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 first um white assistant movie as opposed <laughs> to the white savior movie because you know jack burton is just kind of there to assist the real heroes are you know are are are, are his friends you know and and with that so like with that that and really even with when you compare that and starman again it's an outside kind of outside his normal bubble it's not really a horror film at all mm-hmm. it's action comedy it's uh with a with a really fun cast too and the uh when you look you know they why well, 
I can't believe when I was saying it was his only foray into sci-fi and I forgot they live. Um, well, and of course, um, Dark Star. Dark Star, yes. And Dark Star is one of those ones. Have you seen, uh, so the Red Letter Media guys are doing a, they're like on their second part of, of three-parter ranking the, uh, the, the car- films of Carpenter. Mm-hmm. and i'm just kind of blown away because one of the guys is it's I, I i don't rich and oh, uh, the the one i've guy, never watched it so i have no idea yeah oh okay uh, two of the guys but one of the guys is like i'm i'm really bad at re- i don't really remember the names of the red letter media guys mm-hmm. um i i think i know there's a rich and a mike and now I'm drawing a blank on, but anyways, the, in their rankings, I was just shocked because one of them, he put like the fog and um, what was it? The fog and a few other, I, like, I can understand why they, but they, they were putting like at the bottom of their list, some of the films that I'm like, how is that film below the ward? How is that film below Ghost? Oh, now, now I need to see. Like, yeah. What did they put below the ward? Because there's not, not a whole lot you can put below it. And uh, their, their criticism of Dark Star was that it feels like a student film that got expanded. I mean, that's what it that's is. Right. And, and, right. And, and, they, and one of them was like, yeah. And then, so I started reading up on it. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's, that, that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I like... I, I haven't even been able to get through or start the second part because I was just so shocked and appalled. <laughs> the the fog was appearing like I think just above the ward, and I'm like, what? In the it's... in the I, I get the criticisms because like in the in Dead Last in in they the panel was very clear that yes we all get that it's not you know. It's not like groundbreaking or anything, but it's just a really effective ghost story. And I just don't understand how that doesn't at least make like the top 10 to 12, you know? Yeah, I love the fog. I can't imagine. I, I could, yeah, I, I couldn't, I couldn't. I, it's one of those ones. The fog is one of those movies where, yeah, it can be slow at times, but I just, I'm hooked in from the moment of the opening with uh, John Hausman and the the watch mm. around the campfire with the kids. And I'm like, it's just so, and, and the backstory that they reveal, you know, that the whole thing was actually, the, the, it's a great tragic backstory mm. that lends, yeah, you, you want the people to survive, but you also can see, it's a film that lets you see the ghost's perspective. Mm-hmm. as fairly justified that they're not really <laughs> they're really not really happy uh, happy to be there of course you know when they go and remake a john carpenter remakes nobody i guess assault on 13 precinct 13 was okay but like that fog remake oh it's so bad so bad. Oh, and, and re- rewatched it for the imdb bottom 10 is terrible terrible oh movie. that's right that's part of the imd um, so i'm gonna have to watch it again yeah. soon have fun with that it's so bad and it's not even bad in a way that's interesting it's just right 
Yeah. Like, why would you watch The Fog and be like, okay, I'm going to pay tribute to John Carpenter by making this crap? Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm amazed because how many years later did they make that? It must have been what? 2005, I think. 2005. So a good 20 some years later, and a fog machine was a better with some green lights inside the fog was a far better effect than what they did. Yeah, the CGI. <laughs> the CGI. And I'm not even somebody who complains all the time about CGI, but I did, my feeling is CGI should be a tool that enhances your existing effects mm -hmm. or also things that just are literally impossible to do. You can't put a, you can't put a man in a suit for that type of thing, mm -hmm. you know, but I don't really care for CG. You know, I, I it, it blows my mind that that movie has CGI. That's not really any better than say the uh, mummy twos scorpion King. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's, they, that's some bad CGI. <laughs> yes. It, it, it really, I just, that, that, and that, none of the characters are compelling like they are. And it's not that I dislike the actors particularly or anything in the remake, but nobody's got a Tom Atkins vibe in that mm. film. Uh, nobody really feels like the, any of those characters. And yeah, there's, there's stock characters in the original, but they, the actors bring a presence to a lot of those roles. Mm -hmm. So, you know, Adrian Barbeau is like, I'm worried for her kid with her when I'm watching it because they, they establish that, you know, part of the reason she works the hard work she does, you know, puts in the hours she puts in is to make sure that her son is taken care of. But I, you just get nothing, none of that. And then they add the fog. Cause I remember the one thing that sticks out to me in the fog remake was that they added a whole subplot where one of the characters is reincar is the reincarnated wife of the captain. Yeah. And I'm just like, you didn't need that. It's already tragic because there's such an, e what they did to the lepers trying to build, just trying to find a place to live was so evil in the original story mm -hmm. i mean that's a, that that's what it is uh, it's finding out in a lot of ways as much as it's it's a standard ghost story you could look at it as people that that aspect of finding out like like when you are taught american history through our schools and then you get to uh educations that give you a deeper deeper dive and you really find out exactly what was behind some and it's like oh we did some our leaders have done some pretty wicked wicked stuff over the mm -hmm. over the years of this country uh you know columbus is not quite the guy that you're taught he was you know in school or at least when i was in school columbus was an unambiguous hero you know oh yeah definitely definitely same thing with with my childhood and and so in a way because it really is that 
the the dark secrets the the, the town is finding are, are paying for the dark secrets of the of the people who built the town mm -hmm. and i think that work i i think that works but it's still just let's see and what what were the other what other john carpenter films have been remade outside of assault on precinct precinct 13? i mean halloween obviously <laughs> halloween oh, oh my gosh yes because i put that out of my mind a lot <laughs> the funny thing is when i saw it in theaters i i walked out going well you know if it wasn't called halloween if this was rob zombie's slasher movie mm -hmm. i'd have been fine i i didn't you know even though i felt all the characters were so unlikable in his take and i think that is what hurts that those films that and all the mystery he didn't get michael myers and what yeah. makes michael myers frightening the more you know about michael myers the less frightening he becomes yeah he's the boogeyman you don't you yeah. don't explain who the boogeyman is and that i think that's what carpenter and carpenter got put into a corner with halloween too because he didn't really want to do a halloween too yeah so he tried to come up with something and and that just snowballed into you know the thorn cult and all these other things and all those things also diminished michael a lot mm -hmm. and instead of and it, rob zombie had an opportunity prime opportunity to bring back what made him scary and he made him even less frightening you know mm. he just made him big Although I yeah. will say, I do love the theatrical versions, Prison Break or Asylum Break with the mm -hmm. cops. That's a great scene. That's really well done. I hate when I, when I watched the director's cut. Yeah. When I first saw that, oh my gosh, that, why they took that scene out and replaced it with a rape scene. Yeah, I don't, I don't get that. It's, it's so, it's just such a, it becomes such a nauseating scene. I also didn't like, I can't remember if the, in the theatrical cut if he actually kills Danny Trejo's character, but I kind of would have. Yeah, liked... he does. Oh, he did. Oh, okay. What? I don't remember the theatrical cut. I know he definitely does in the director's cut. He does in the director's cut, and part of me kind of feels like it would have been a weird, interesting, scary thing if that's the one person he let live, because mm. that guy showed him. Because that it, it's even it's a rare non-tough guy role for him. For mm -hmm. Danny Trail. And he's just this kindly janitor who always was nice to Mike, you know, to Mike and calls him Mikey. And, you know, I'm like, I, on the other hand, I suppose that's the probably the one kill in the entire film where I like felt genuine sympathy and dread for the mm -hmm. victim. Otherwise, like the rape scene, you're kind of going like, when's he going to kill these guys? You know? Mm -hmm. And I don't like any of the, well, actually the most likable character is Daniel Harris's Annie. Mm. And yeah, she's both, really good in that. I really liked her in them. And I felt bad for her in a way because of how, how they, uh, you know, how they dealt with the character. I appreciated that they kept her alive for the sequel. Mm. But just the whole, her having to spend so much time getting slaughtered, you know, topless. I'm like, yeah, is, I, I get it. His aesthetic is like grungy 70s grindcore or, gr you know, grindhouse. grindhouse filmmaking. 
I do get yeah. that. I still just find it. I, I just, there are times, and I, 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 I'm not somebody who like hates nudity in films. I don't hate, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, you sometimes see on film Twitter, there'll be that person that, we, we don't need sex scenes in movies. And I'm no, like, yeah. well, we don't need a lot of things in movies. I, I'll agree that a lot of sex scenes and a lot of nudity in films, especially horror, horror are primarily for gratuity's sake, not yeah. for the sake of this compels the plot. But I also feel like in horror, sometimes uh, it just feels like I, my mind just shuts down on it because it's mm -hmm. like, okay, it is what it is. That's part of horror. Horror, horror has got an exploitation angle. Um, but like, I always, I, I just, I, I, for some reason, I just always felt bad for Daniel Harris for, because, mm -hmm. because I've been on a movie set and I've had to play dead before. Mm -hmm. and, that means she probably was laying on the floor uh, in fake blood for hours mm -hmm. <laughs> with no with no shirt or anything. And I'm like, oh man, that that had that. And she does seem to be someone who's not really awkward about that. It's no, not like no, she, she seems very game. Yeah, and and she. It, it, it's just I think I find her a, a likable person so I kind of am like I, I feel I start feeling somewhat like come on man you didn't have to do that <laughs> and like I watched a movie did you ever see a movie called Muck it's a Kane it, it's a film with Kane Hodder mm, don't think so it literally has an actress who doesn't even get named in the credits because she just runs around you never see her head or face you just see her from the neck down and she's only in a pair of underwear no bra and it's like i just and it was such a bad use of kane hotter that's my biggest complaint in horror films is when you get iconic performers and waste them yeah you give we've them some stupid tony nothing todd. role yeah we've got tony todd well he's the voice of a carnival barker mm-hmm no, no, I want to see Tony Todd do something. The man's a the man is iconic in part because he's a really good actor. Like mm -hmm. when you go back to the candy to the original Candyman, it's very clear that it's a romance. Mm -hmm. And and all the way when you watch interviews with any of the women, they're all like, Tony was he's just so handsome, you know. So like Virginia Madison was like very easy to have to be in his embrace and you know look into his eyes well if i recall uh, one of the one of the ideas for a Candyman sequel was going to be like a straight up you know romance like you know yeah but they i couldn't make it happen and the 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 but when it comes down to when you get back to yeah so when you get these movies where they don't use an iconic character character actor or it just in a in a useful way i mean fuck flower is pretty much always going to be playing was always going to be playing bums mm -hmm. and stuff like that but so it's not a shock to see him in constantly in those typecast roles he, he clearly enjoyed being that kind of being in those roles because he did them a lot mm -hmm. and 
it, but you know, when it's, when you've got Kane Hodder or, or Tony Todd or any, you know, and that's one of the one things I will positives. I always give to Rob Zombie. Mm-hmm. His casting is just amazingly fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he's got the, he, cause he loves a lot of, he does love a lot of the stuff we love. So, you know, of those older movies, uh, the, the stuff from the eighties and you go back and John Carpenter just had this nice array of people that kept showing up in his movies, you know, even so his supporting casts were always really, really great people, you know, They'd be in small bit parts sometimes, but but I always remember them. I don't think I don't think Rob Zombie is a terrible filmmaker in terms of like like technically speaking. I think no. the issue for me is really his writing. It, his exactly. writing is is terrible. His writing is and it's it's the story choices that he tends to make. Mm-hmm. Because they'd be very interested to see him direct something that he did write and see what that was like, you know, what that would, what he would do with it. I I once said very seriously, I'd almost really like to see him direct a rom com that somebody mm. wrote. <laughs> that would be very see, strange. Just to see what he would do to put his own stamp on it. Because I actually I I generally I like House of a Thousand Corpses mm-hmm. because clearly had never made a movie he'd only made music videos to that point yeah really had no idea what he's doing the script is the script is not good it meanders all over the place but the cast is is clearly having a great time you've got people like bill mosley in it Mm. uh you've got rain wilson you've got uh oh who Karen Black was in yeah. the sequel. Who was it in the... Or wait, was Karen Black in... Karen Black was in House of a Thousand Corpses. Oh, that's recast right. And she was recast by Leslie Easterbrook in, uh, in, the, in, in Devil's Rejects. The, you know, Sid Haig. Uh, and Sid Haig is just a blast in that film, you know? Mm. So I like, but I liked it because he didn't know you shouldn't do some things. So he would mm. do wildly inventive music video type shots in that movie. Yeah, the whole thing is basically a music video. Yeah, it's just a, like I love he he does that whole sequence where it's the the cops and the one girl's father arrive on the farm, mm. and they all start discovering and you know and it's just this bloodbath. They all get killed, um, but it's all set to the music. Uh, who's going to mow your grass by Buck Owens. Mm-hmm. And then they get to the final guy and I, I, the deputy, and I think it's Walter Goggins is mm-hmm. the uh, deputy who's he's on his knees. Uh, Bill Mosley's Otis has a gun to his head. The song stops playing and the camera just keeps flying out into the sky farther mm-hmm. and farther and farther away. And it's like, the most tension that movie has is in this moment of complete silence before he finally pulls the trigger. And I'm like, that's actually a really well done shot. And it's really effective. I wish Rob Zombie was more consistently effective that way. But Mm. you're right. Technically, I don't think his technical prowess is 
bad. It is really in his writing. And I think he would benefit from seeking out some scripts where he's like, oh, I like this script and use somebody else's script. I am curious about this Mun Munsters project, like how, yeah. how that is going to work out. Is he going to, is he going to like keep it kind of, you know, uh, I, I keep it from being like, too out over the top? Yeah, it, I, I would hope, I feel like they've, they've tried serious Munsters before and that failed because of the 1313 Mockingbird Lane which aired a pilot and that's it. Mm. Uh, which Jerry O'Connell as Herman Munster, Munster is a change. Mm -hmm. you know? <laughs> um, so I'm hoping that we get to see a funner side Yeah. With, with this. I hope he realizes that a lot of the charm of the Munsters is their fun. Yeah. You know, they're fun characters. I mean, Fred, I I will be very curious to see the full casting. Fred mm -hmm. Gwynn just is so definitive in my brain of that character. Uh, and even when they tried to revitalize it without, you know, with different actors on TV, like the monsters today and stuff, just never worked for me. The, the originals I love, but I I I, I, I He's going to put his wife as, as Lily yeah. Munster. That's, that's, that's a sure. foregone conclusion. Because, yeah, and I feel like she has to be, she can't be Marilyn. She's just, I, I, I don't mean this pejoratively, but she's too old, you know, yeah, yeah. For, for that role. Marilyn has to be young 20s, mm. that, that character. So she can't be Marilyn. So, I, yeah, I'm not going to be shocked at all when it turns out she's uh, Lily Munster. And I, don't, I just don't want to, I don't want to monsters where they're like all swearing at each other. I just think yeah. that's just, I don't want that. Well, you know, it's kind of like, I, I, I feel like I was really on the outside uh, of the uh, opinion of, I wasn't like super psyched for Quentin Tarantino's Star Trek. Mm -hmm, though I admit yeah. there was a part of me that would be curious just to see just to see what weird experiment that would be. Yeah. But I didn't, I, I, to me, he's not a Star Trek guy. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't see, like the, his themes are very different. Yeah, his aesthetic, his, I mean, I like, I, I like his work, mm. but I just feel like I just never got excited by the idea of him being, heading up a star trek you know and when i that's why i always i'm not like like i'm like josh when it comes to remakes i i don't i don't really have a problem with the concept yeah but i i do want you to make it interesting you know that's yeah. why the thing works that's why uh i and, and i think it works far better than his uh then what whatchamacallit the village of the damned which is okay but it definitely it doesn't feel like carpenter had as much excitement about doing that as he did some of his earlier works no he's yeah. definitely it's weird if you look at his post 90s work in the mouth of madness is kind of an outlier where like yeah. a film where he actually put in an effort because everything else after after the 80s is all paycheck films or 
Stuffy yeah. just kind of, you know, crapping out. Well, because like you even get uh, with um, what what call it the uh, with Escape from L.A. Mm-hmm. I like it; it's fun, but it is nowhere near uh, <laughs> Escape from New York. But I do. It's I can watch it again. It, mm-hmm. It's got it's got its moments. It, it's not, you know. I mean, some of the green screen stuff is just embarrassingly bad. Yeah. But, but Although yeah, I kind, of, I kind of like that it's bad because I think it kind of fits with the film with its kind of cheesy, <laughs> yeah. almost B movie feel. Because it is very much. I mean, uh, it, well, and I think again, going back to in the dead last, I think Josh has described had described it as he feels like it this is how john carpenter feels about los angeles mm-hmm. he doesn't like it and and it really is just pissing all over los angeles and mm-hmm. there are things in that film where i'm like okay i i i, I some of the logic like like the fact that it's a super deeply conservative christian country mm-hmm with severe laws uh with the death penalty for the but one of their laws also is you must be vegan <laughs> there's no meat eating in in that america and i'm like i do not know any christians hardcore conservative christians who oppose eating meat yeah, i don't know how that happens that doesn't make sense man <laughs> Yeah, veganism is more of a left thing. That's a very right thing. yeah. That's what that that's that that was so. And I know a lot of what drove that script was just general political correctness at the time, which was mm-hmm. a, which is why. Uh, when, the, the irony is when you look at that, you realize how much of even back then the stuff being called politically correct was always was really never highly left there were just certain certain little pockets you mm-hmm. know but it was mostly it was mostly the morals of the right that drove a lot of that and 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 so it, it, it's always funny that i was watching i the my copy of vampire my blu-ray copies of vampires and ghosts from mars are uh are imports and mm-hmm. they had a two-part interview uh, with by oh god I don't I can't remember who the interviewer is but he talked about how until they live he never was political he said he was never political in his movies and he said no, I don't agree I don't agree at all but I thought it was funny that in his mind but I think it kind of goes back to uh, that whole idea of people don't have a problem with politics in films. They just have a problem with their politics not being in those films or politics they disagree with being at the center of the films. And John was a mostly left-leaning guy. So most of his films have messages that lean into that, you know? It affects all of his films. If you go back, you can break them all down and see how the perspective is there. And even because, you know, like you look at uh, Prince of Darkness, there's a lot going on in there about religion and, and secrets and dangers and all. And, 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 you know, the paranoia of the thing, 
all his his three end of the world films are all favorites for me mm-hmm. you know the the and and plus i've always been an alice cooper fan so <laughs> darkness gets elevated even just by that for me because <laughs> it's got fair. both the song and the uh and the presence of alice but yeah i i, I thought it was funny that he thought that he wasn't political or so and, and also i think a lot of times a lot of politics are social and so people mm. don't people separate the two if they think they're doing a social message they don't think they're being political mm-hmm. and and that was so i was like i'm pretty sure if we look back at your films you were saying stuff well before uh they live mm-hmm. they live was just the most concentrated you know i i i always laugh when people will sit there and justify how that it's okay that that film was so blatant and ham-fisted and and i love it for those things Mm -hmm. but to complain about modern movies for doing the same thing it's like no that that's what that's what makes that movie work too that movie wouldn't work if it was more subtle to be honest and and that's with carpenter i feel like i feel like when you look at carpenter you can analyze his films because there's so much substance to they are substantive he did he made horror for people who wanted more you you got the gore from them but you you he gave you more than that and if you if you want horror that you have to think about then he was he was there for you you know yeah he wasn't making cheapy slashers even i would say even halloween has has stuff going on it yeah but you know halloween's really cool because it's it's a remix film it's carpenter taking all these these cool elements from all these different films and putting them together and doing them well and sort of uh almost creating a genre that was sort of you know slowly bubbling beneath the surface yeah, because you know you had Black Christmas a few years before, but I always I often describe that as the granddad of of the slasher film because that happened and there were a couple of films on the heels of that that were kind of slasher proto slashers and Peeping Tom of course really yeah. probably even more so because yeah definitely it's definitely a slasher. Because yeah, so that so those two films I feel like were the two that really informed Black Christmas and Peeping Tom. So informed what, and you when you look at Halloween, he's kind of distilled that down, you know, to be okay. He's put it all together in his own story, and I, I appreciate. I I just appreciated what, and I feel like he's founded himself with with solid people to make sure i mean if you didn't have guys like dean cundy a lot of his early work could be very could have turned out so pedestrian yeah dean cundy is an underrated aspect of his you know his early films he he was he's one of those guys who elevated he elevated carpenter's vision and direction and Mm -hmm. knew what to I mean, he knew how to work with those, you know, with the with the elements before them, and 
and make things look dramatic in a, in a powerful way. He knew how to work within the lighting. Um, and I really, you, you know, and Deborah Hill cannot be under, I mm. mean, I think she was an important part of his early work mm. as a writer too, because, you know, I, yeah, you, you, you often see her as producer in name, but she clearly, was, there was a clear partnership going on creatively. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, beyond, <laughs> beyond the obvious partnership of, uh, of being a couple for mm -hmm. a portion of those films. But even after their marriage ended, she was still a part of making sure his work was coming out, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really, he, he, I think he, I think it says a lot to his wisdom as a director and a creator. And you get, you get direct, you get some of these people in the modern age who might have an eye for something like a, a Zack Snyder, but mm -hmm. they become overconfident in what they're bringing to the table and start to forget that maybe it's good to have other people bouncing off of you, you know, like, he was well, I feel own. the same way about Zack Snyder as I feel about Rob Zombie. What he yeah. needs is better writing, you know, better writing behind his films. Well, like the Army of the Dead. I liked parts of it. I enjoyed bits mm. and pieces. But boy, my, my takeaway was he should not have been his own cinematographer. Because mm. he, he was in the film. He, he was both director and cinematographer. And I think I think it's really rare to find someone who's that good that they can yeah. direct the film and be their cinematographer. Cause I think you need, I think uh, like director of photography and stuff like that, you should have another eye, get, look, keeping an eye on your yeah. lighting. There's so like many that. roles where the directors can take up, but I think director of photography is one that you just really shouldn't unless you are an experienced director yeah. of photography. If you came out of it, because certainly you have directors who that's where they started, but mm. that's a different scenario then because you're you're entering with experience. But I just always feel like with Carpenter, he didn't, he never seemed to be so hung, he's never seemed so hung up on I'm John Carpenter mm. that he uh you know that he that, that that he wasn't gonna hear out hear someone else out. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, what was it, Jason? Uh, oh God, I can't think of his last name now. But one of the, one of his regular film regulars, um, Jason, could look him up. But um, <laughs> uh, you know, he. Uh, oh God, let's see. Let me just. I hate not crediting people properly. You know? Yeah. And uh, let's see here. Uh, he was in. Oh, okay. Village of the Damned, the film where Superman kills a bunch of kids. <laughs> oh, Peter Jason. That's what I was. Mm, that's what I was Peter Jason. He said that when he was working on Village of the Damned, he told. Uh, carpenter that he thought maybe he'd be interested in joining the producer's side of things maybe not just be an actor anymore mm. and he said all right he said carpenter said uh, you show up 
tomorrow and we'll start you. And he gave him a week as pr producer and he said, it was the most exhausting work. Because <laughs> he's like, he's, Carpenter would be like, oh, okay, can you go pick up somebody from the airport? Okay, thanks, drive drive a few hours. So you have to drive a few hours to the airport, pick yeah. someone up, bring them back, come back. Oh, okay, today, can you check on this? Oh, today, can you do that? And, and it would just be him running around everywhere on his days where he didn't have to act. And he's like, yeah, yeah. I came in after the last day and said, I don't, I don't think I need to be a producer. <laughs> <laughs> and I, but I, I, I like that. And, and he talks, uh, Peter Jason talks about that once you get brought into John's family, so to speak, you're there for life. You know, you're pretty much there for life. You're invited to part all, all, you know, any, any holidays and stuff like that. And I'm like, you know, he may he makes carpenters sound like a, a cool guy to know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and that is one of those things where I'm like, people talk about how there aren't really uh that we, we don't have leading men anymore or you know stuff like that. But I kind of mm -hmm. feel like we don't have a lot of people like Carpenter anymore. Yeah. Director like Carpenter and Wes Craven and I mean horror is now becoming something where it's getting overtaken by bigger names uh or i mean and i love like the a24 stuff i i i, I was a big fan of hereditary and mm -hmm. and you know uh really all uh, if it's a24 is on it i i'm very likely getting given a shot yeah but it seems like everything nowadays that could have been the domain of guys like carpenter aren't anymore and so you just fall into you've got lots of people like making their own little independent stuff mm -hmm. uh like l incredibly cheapy stuff that pops up on uh on streaming services like tubi mm -hmm. and like even the direct to video domain isn't necessarily because like you're not for a little while there you could get that with like uh whatchamacallit um netflix but now netflix they sign big directors you know? yeah yeah they're, they're going they're giving and it's weird to think of somebody like scorsese essentially doing direct to video now you know i mean yeah i know they put the irishman in theaters for a couple of weeks but let's face it it was direct to video yeah. you know and I, all the new directors that are m memorable to me right now in horror, nobody feels like a carpenter. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a different it's a different vibe. See, the thing yeah. that happened is that Scream happened, and everything horror after Scream is a completely different ball game because the studios realized that there's a whole lot of money in horror. You know, they, I mean, they knew that you could make money off of horror, but they like they realized no, you could put stars and big directors on these films and make a lot of money. Yeah, because Scream really is that point where you see things turning around as far as the, the, it suddenly became horror wasn't necessarily where you started and you tried to get out of, you know, as an yeah. actor. All of a sudden it was, hey, now we can get, we well, and, and part of that, like Halloween H2O, they brought back Jamie Lee Curtis for the first time. But I think part of that too was 
she kind of came around to realizing how much how 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 the fans really reacted to the films and she kind of appreciated even though she's not a big fan of horror because that's always her thing if you would see her interviewed when she's asked about her horror credentials she doesn't like horror movies because they scare her <laughs> so mm-hmm. and and i get that i respect that but she all of a sudden she what she doesn't come across as like i'm too good for these things no she'll she's coming back now she's come back in done quite a bit of horror since h2o mm-hmm. and nowadays you can get really established actors for your horror you know in ways you couldn't before and that's something i think is on the one hand i think that's cool but yeah on the other hand it feels like it's suddenly edging out new voices that used to come out of nowhere in the uh in more standard genre fare. I mean, really, you could get more meta and say this is really just a bigger problem with Hollywood in general. Yes. Finding, you know, unestablished stars and, you know, unestablished directors and giving them a chance is just, you know, it's harder. The window is closed for them. The, yeah, because really now even somebody, uh, I, I saw someone on Twitter who was like, you know, Marvel keeps snapping up these indie directors who've won the Palme d'Or to make their, their their superhero sequels. And I'm like, makes sense. They're gonna be less expensive. They're gonna be, but they also give some some credibility to the, you know, I I you know that's why Marvel is gone for all all these smaller directors is because they want it's both cheaper and also they want that credibility they're they're well, constantly seeking the validation i mean chloe jaw went to them you know she yeah. She, oh, yeah. she said she came she went to them and said she wanted to you know make a make an eternals film and and i'm looking forward to it i i don't get the the folks who've been criticizing that one as a uh you know as all gray i'm like i've seen the trailer few times in theaters lots of color happening in there lots of stuff i'm really curious to see what she does i want to i want to check it out uh i like that cast you know so I, i i'm intrigued because the last time marvel took a completely unknown property uh and made a made a movie out of it we got Guardians of the Galaxy and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume Two, yeah, which most people agree are are kind of the top tier. Yeah, they're they're upper tier. They're upper they're, tier Marvel. They're, they're films. the upper tier Marvel films, and, and and those are films that have a lot of stuff going on emotionally in them, you know, uh, like character arcs and stuff like that. So, I just feel like yeah, it it does seem like as as we've gotten as well and especially as hollywood has gotten so much more dependent on everything being a blockbuster i think that's mm. the other hard part yeah they've created a system that relies on everything being a blockbuster and that's a fundamental problem yes what happens and when everything stops being a blockbuster it, it, when everything in yeah it, because one of the things i've long said that i think marvel needs to do is i think they need to start investing in some smaller films to put out throughout you know each year 
Uh, in fact, I think they should even do some non-MCU films. They should, Marvel's got a huge backlog of IP stuff they could work with. Mm. They could, for all intents and purposes, pull some, I mean, they own uh, the cross-gen stuff. You mm. could easily take one of those cross-gen character uh, series and adapt into a, a, a mid-budget fantasy film and i i think that yeah because one thing that i've noticed too is if you're watching all the post-pandemic stuff going on right now the box office talk is well it's confusing because the number one movie can still be considered a failure because Mm -hmm. well suicide squad cost a lot of money so even though it was the number one movie and was well received, you know it's 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 oh it's toast and yeah they, if they hadn't had it streaming you know it could have yeah. been a different different story and and then you've got Free Guy, which made about the same amount of money its opening weekend and everyone was like smashing success because it wasn't something from an IP yeah. and I'm like but it is a Ryan Reynolds movie and he's got a somewhat successful persona you know um and that that whole up and down and in i it really did make it clear that 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 is exactly it that that dependence on blockbusters they're just waiting for the huge blockbuster to come back and i don't think we're gonna get any like billion dollar um what is it I don't think we're gonna get like the the Avenger Avengers numbers. No, 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 not until for a long until the pandemic time. is really over. Yeah, I think that is. I, I don't think I think we're a few years from seeing those kinds of numbers at all. If we ever return to that, and maybe yeah. this should be the the hint that maybe bring those budgets down. You know, maybe uh, invest in. It. I mean, I'm going to be shocked, you know, because one thing Marvel doesn't seem to really take into account, they're living too much in today. Mm. <laughs> and I think that horror, you know, like horror had, horror does have a nice little safety net in the fact that low budget horror can still be immensely, um, can still be an immensely profitable thing. Mm-hmm. So a studio can, like Bloomhouse can have, you know, as long as they're making over their budget back, horror benefits them. And a lot of horror makes its budget back, even stuff that that sucks. You know? Candyman did really well. It did. Uh, yeah. Candyman it, uh, it actually did. Very successful. I was, I was surprised. I mean, I thought I thought it would do decently, but, it, you know, it actually wow. made some good money. For, for a horror movie during a pandemic yeah i i'm re- I, and it, i'm really gonna be curious to see what halloween kills does next week mm. um i want to see it I, I i mean i liked 2018 mostly yeah um, I'm, I'm, I'm a fan of 2018 yeah i thought i thought i thought it was overall good real and 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 some of my criticisms are ultimately answered clearly from the trailers of this film because it was things like, well, that character just disappears completely. And, you know, 
and yeah. nothing happens with him and it's like oh oh the the jerky boyfriend is is going to be in the sequel you know they clearly are playing into some of that stuff and but and i like the little easter eggs we've seen in the trailers like the halloween three masks and stuff yeah that was exciting yeah that that stuff where i'm like okay I, and and it makes sense to me too that this is doing as well or that with, with this i mean the carpenter carpenter and his son doing the score that mm. that that score they they did was just yeah, a, i love the, the I halloween love 2018 the score, score. Of the 2018 because it is it, it it's kind of a beefed up take on the original and mm. it works so well and it, it's like carpenter as a musician i didn't see that one coming i mean as like let me rephrase that <laughs> carpenter doing like actual like tours and stuff was something i never saw coming yeah very strange and now i want to be i'm hoping for an opportunity eventually that he would come through through minnesota <laughs> because i would love to see his his lost themes albums are phenomenal mm, i mean i so love good. them and they i i I, I almost any time I talk to someone who's like, he has his albums. It's like, yes, yes. And you should get them. Yeah, <laughs> and then yeah. I, I have yet to have anyone come back to me with a, eh, I guess it was all right. No, it's always, you know, people come back and are like, these are amazing. I want to see the movie they're tied to, you know? Yeah. yeah it's... It, but yeah, that that was one of those turns that I didn't see coming because he, you know, he with the score that obviously he had all these ideas that he never got to use, and that. So I'm like, thanks for putting out the albums, man. <laughs> I didn't, they were albums I didn't know I needed. I hope he makes another movie. I just, yeah, do another Snake Snake Plissken movie. You know, just yeah. You know, maybe if I, maybe an old man Jack Burton movie would be a great one to do. You know, mm -hmm. a fun, you know, find another. Although the hard part, because the, the the first one is so connected to Asian cinema, and mm -hmm. I can't think of uh, like Asian martial arts cinema, and I can't think of. I can't think of where you could set Jack Burton. If you wanted to do like a tribute to another type of international cinema, mm. can't think of something that would fit him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. You know, but yeah, I mean, another snake. Uh, Kurt Russell's still clearly up to to these roles. Yeah. You know, do Escape from Earth. You know, do it. Do yeah. Escape from Earth. I mean, I think it is pretty clear that Ghosts of Mars somewhere started as an idea for. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it absolutely did. For a Pliskin film, because yeah, Escape from Mars. Yeah, everybody, every character in that feels like they're from a, for you know, everyone feels like they're from a uh, a, a Pliskin movie. Mm. <laughs> All these characters, and yet it never comes. I, I mean, it's just such a weird movie. Yeah. I, I, I just. I I appreciate that he was trying to do something wild, but even it's, the soundtrack is kind of weird because it's a John Carpenter soundtrack 
but performed by other people. Yeah. Uh, by you know by a band by a different band, and I don't know. I just it also feels really convoluted, like they didn't really know what they wanted to do. Whereas you know, getting back going back to Starman, Starman feels very precise. Mm. Ghosts of Mars is a film that feels like they just threw it all in a blender. Don't know what they didn't really know what they wanted to do. Uh, neither of the leads ultimately stick with me. Yeah, you know, as far as uh, Ice Cube and Natasha Henstridge's characters, I mean, they're not bad characters, but they just feel like they feel like imitation John Carpenter. Yeah, <laughs> and. And just nothing in that film works, works as well. And it is like you said, once you get into the nineties, that's where Carpenter starts getting really dicey. Yeah, it's like vampires, man. This movie is just so, ugh. It's, I don't know what the hell happened there. It's, it's, and I, I keep meaning to, I found that the uh, Audible has the book that it's based on. And I've been mm-hmm. told the book's actually pretty good. <coughs> Because I find, I, I mean, the idea of uh, Vatican-sanctioned, of uh, you know, vampire hunters isn't a terrible idea. Yeah, but a lot of it is. James Woods has no charm in that movie. Yeah, and it, it's just nothing about the film. I just never. It doesn't engage me at all as a viewer. Yeah. Not like any any of his earlier works. I just kind of am watching it, you know. Yeah. Characters are all really grating. Yes. And and of course, there's uh, James Woods's character's obsession with uh, with erections. <laughs> oh yeah. That just doesn't pay off. As it's not particularly funny. You know, it's like nothing in the nothing in that movie ever gels together to feel like I don't like any of these guys. You, you like to say they're all grating and obnoxious characters. I mean, let the vampires win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, as I, I whereas like at least I, I still feel invested in Escape from LA. And I I do think that uh Escape from LA's last shot is a great, you know, mm. that's kind of a, that's just a good kind of, uh, was it Snake Plissken is a badass bit? Mm. <laughs> when, yeah, I, I mean, I think Escape from LA's ending is better than Escape from New York. So it's like the yeah. one aspect of the film that actually is an improvement. I won't say an improvement, but like, I like it, it more. Yeah, it, 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 there's, it surpasses it because it is, it, it just feels like, this is Snake Plissken. Mm-hmm. He doesn't, you know, like just the the whole the whole idea that he's a, you know, it's better to shut it all down. You know, mm-hmm. Let, let's go back to the Stone Age, and then that's it. He's done. And I, I, yeah. So I like that. I think that I think that ending is great, and. But I, of course, I do. I, I I've mentioned this before, but my one of my favorite things about John Carpenter is how he just does not look forward at all in technology. 
Mm-hmm. So they're using like literal cassette tapes, like like you put in your tape player at home uh, as their high tech, you know, stuff in Escape from New York. Mm-hmm. And it's only after CDs had become a thing. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't even high tech then. <laughs> no, yeah. By that point, it was like, well, of course, I mean, you look at RoboCop and they're, you know, they're using CD technology before there were, or D, as they were using the DVD before there really was any of that other than you did have, you did have like video CDs and stuff like that, but you didn't really have, it wasn't that standard that everyone would have it, you know, whereas in that, in, in RoboCop, Verhoeven's got everything is so feels so futuristic that even now it just feels current you know Mm -hmm. and carpenter was never really good about that part of it (laughs) but um yeah so i just really with carpenter though he's got that really strong run and, and and somehow he's got such a strong run it overshadows one of his great movies. <laughs> when you look, when you look at Starman, you kind of get when you start looking. Oh, of course, it's overshadowed by all of these, and not just for the horror element, but even just it's not a very bombastic movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it's not like a They Live. It's not a Big Trouble in Little China. It's I mean, maybe it's a film made for a different audience. Exactly. He was not making it for people who are going to see a bunch of violence and mayhem. Mm -hmm. And, and, and that's why I, it's, it's a movie that I, I, I will always recommend it to people. Uh, If folks haven't seen it, I'm pretty sure it's available on streaming. (laughs) I I think we speaking for us both, can very much recommend people should check out Starman if it's one of those holes in your John Carpenter viewing but you think of yourself as a fan of Carpenter you need to see it it's it's definitely worth watching but I want to thank you for uh, joining me today Stephen and uh, of course you have a letterbox if people want to check out your letterbox and see what movies you're watching um. uh, I'm palm de plume on there. All right. I'll also put that in the uh, description for this episode so people can link to it and check you out there. Uh, thanks again. I uh, really appreciate you joining me here this week. Totally. And I want to thank you for listening to the podcast with no name. If you want to find me elsewhere, I can be found on Instagram under both at Tom Wade and at Tom Wade Art. At Tom Wade is at T H O M W A D E, and at Tom Wade Art is at T H O M W a-D-E-A-R-T and that's a page specifically devoted to my artwork my digital artwork my uh, natural media artwork Um, that's where you'll find that the main Tom Wade one is more for just me having fun 
And you can also find me on Twitter under at Tom Wade. Again, it's at T-H-O-M-W-A-D-E. Then, in addition, if you would like to support the podcast, I would love and appreciate that. Uh, I definitely would like to build this podcast into something that can maybe even just, you know, bring in some additional income, but more so to bring in money that could be applied to the podcast, Uh, whether it be to get, I don't know, products, uh, you know, like uh, uh, specific books uh, that I might want to look into, uh, movies, um, and and comics that are maybe uh, hoping to delve some more into some more comics this season. I, I would love and appreciate your support. Uh, and to that end, I have a Patreon. Uh, the Patreon has two tiers. One is a $2 a month tier, uh, which gets you updates, behind the scenes information, uh, pics of my cats, because I have really cute cats. Then for $5 a month, you get all of that, Plus, uh, four to five times a year, I'm going to send you actual artwork that's made by me. It'll be both, uh, there might be some printed out digital artwork, but there will also be a lot of, it will be uh, will be natural media, uh, pen and ink, watercolor, that type of thing. So on Patreon, you can locate me under Tom Wade, and that is T-H-O-M space, W-A-D-E. So Tom space Wade. Uh, Thank you again for listening, and I will see you next episode.